0: Hi, this is Chris Bilton at University of Warwick, and you're listening to the We'll Meet Again podcast, life under lockdown in the cultural and creative industries. Over the next few weeks, I'll be talking to people working in the arts and media about how they and their organisations are adapting, what has changed under lockdown, what might change in the future, and what needs to change. it's Wednesday the 22nd of July and in this episode I'm talking to Lisa Harewood a freelance producer filmmaker and multimedia storyteller working in the UK and in the Caribbean so you're you're kind of based in London but doing work in Bristol and in the Caribbean and in London commercial and freelance and funded
1: yeah. So I'm a resident at pervasive media studio. So um, I have in common with everybody else in the studio. Most people in the studio are prototyping or developing something new and interesting um, and have a creative practice that has to sit alongside other work that makes money. Uh, so we're we're all in kind of similar positions with trying to figure out how to maneuver in this landscape right now.
0: And, and looking at the the what the government's doing at the moment with obviously furloughing and and the the big package of support for the arts um there's been quite a lot said about how that doesn't really do much for freelance it's very targeted around institutions which actually have employees and have kind of fairly you know i guess it works if you're if you're the bbc maybe but it doesn't work if you're you and i wondered whether what you feel about that how what what's in it for freelancers, really? And if there's more that should or could be done for people like you,
1: um, there. I mean, there was a provision. Um, the self-employed provision did cover me, so I was able to get one of those um, first grants, and and I should still be eligible for the second grant uh, in September. Um, but there are many, many people who have kind of fallen through the, the the gaps. I'd actually found out that there's a. There's a community interest company that was started called uh, Excluded um, because there are about three million people who aren't covered. Mm -hmm. And of those three million people, I would think a lot of people in film and broadcast would kind of fall into that because if you're a freelance PAYE, but not self-employed if you're a limited company director and when i worked in production management at the bbc a lot of the people that we were contracting uh on the craft side so sound recordists cameramen you know we're being paid through limited limited companies and it's kind of a double blow because a lot of those people had previously been employees of the BBC and, and other um, production companies. And then there were a raft of sort of layoffs. And then they were encouraged to set up limited companies so they could be hired in as freelancers. If you are self employed, you have to be earning profits of less than $50,000. Um, yeah. So that cuts out a lot of people. Um, and if you were a new starter, so you couldn't be furloughed if you were a new starter or if your contract had expired just before. And, you know, in production, things kind of go quiet in the winter. And, you know, March is kind of the time where things start to ramp up again. So a lot of people were in that place of having uh, lined up work for the rest of the year, you know, by March. And all of that went away, but they weren't actually contracted to anybody officially yet or they had just started
0: yeah sure and it's and as you say it's something that's been the direction of travel for well for a long time for 20 years or more but but it it's something that people have been encouraged to do to set up in as a as a a small business to have the work contracted out to them rather than being employed formally you've always made a virtue of of being a a multi-projects person doing lots of different projects i remember you uh, advocating that to the students when you came about, mm. gosh, I mean 10 years ago now or something, you know, zigging and way, zagging. Way doing more different than
1: 10. things. <laughs> it probably was.
0: I know. I, terrible. I just it, was too, of...
1: it was 2003. So wow, yeah, 17 really? years ago now. Yeah.
0: Okay. <laughs> well, even 17 years ago, you were doing, you were saying, look, let's do lots of different projects. Mm. Let's do lots of different things. Let's kind of, um, uh, you know, let's not think about a career in as as a filmmaker or a, a career mm. as a, a, a whatever. You, you know, actually, you get you you have lots of projects, and and I was thinking, you know, before I, before we started this conversation, I was thinking, well, that must leave you quite vulnerable. But in mm. a way, what what seems it seems like in some ways that's been a strength for you.
1: Mm. Yeah, even before um, coronavirus, I mean, I think my perspective comes from the fact that I obviously was working primarily in the Caribbean. So I'm in a market where there's not a lot of film work or not, not a lot of television work. And so I couldn't just uh, identify the one thing and say, that's what I'm going to do. I wouldn't be able to eat. So we have to sort of be a jack of all trades in order to build a career in a place where there's not a lot of creative industries and creative industry support. Hmm. So coming back here, I moved back here uh, four years ago this year and for me, it was just natural to keep doing all of those things. Um, lots of people that I know are, do the same thing. Um, I think at my end of, of the earning <laughs> scale, you kind of have to. And also because I moved here and, and I do have this sort of patchwork CV, people don't quite know what to do with me. So when I stepped into working in TV, even though I had all this experience, I didn't have experience in television. I had experience in independent video making and independent filmmaking. So I, to a certain extent, still had to prove myself. So I went into production management because that in the Caribbean, I don't just direct what I'm doing. I also produce what I'm doing. I saw a a graph the other day talking about what skills are most in demand. And maybe 10 years ago, video editing was like one of the top things that's now near the bottom because there are so many um, kind of bespoke packages for video editing that don't re- actually require you to to know software that well. The things that people have specialized in um, have become less lucrative and will probably just die out altogether. So it's useful to have these other skills and say, okay, well, that that one is not going to really cut it even in this period new things are cropping up with people asking me to help them write codes of conduct and and things of that nature Mm -hmm. so there's always I'm always adding things to my skill set because I just think it's a more secure way to have a career
0: I mean I suppose that's the thing isn't it one of the things we we kind of say about artists and creatives is that they they have transferable skills, Mm. you know, and, and now really is the time, isn't it? Because if you're, if you're a content creator, you can't really be making content for platforms where the, you know, which don't exist at the moment or which are, which are blocked up. So you're having to think, okay, so how can I use that skill? In your case, I guess, storytelling or facilitating production which previously you might have been applying to making your own content. Now you're helping other people to communicate, do whatever they need to do.
1: Mm. So for me, I've never felt like, you know, helping other people with their vision or doing other kinds of work that's external to my own creative stuff was any sort of compromise or it's just all part of uh, what I enjoy doing.
0: I mean, especially, I suppose, some of the stuff that's going around Black Lives Matter with Mm -hmm. people wanting to have... You know, people have got important things to say, but they've never really had to sit down and work out what's our communication strategy. What, mm. how do we communicate this? And that's a sort of an opportunity, uh, mm. in a way. Um, it's weird to call it that, but
1: it is. And it, but it is interesting because, you know, by virtue of being black, it doesn't make me an expert on diversity and inclusion. Mm. Um, but. It is an opportunity, and it's an opportunity on both sides. It's an opportunity for us because we are being heard and we are being in some cases invited to spaces that we weren't being invited to before or we're being invited to those spaces and then listened to because sometimes we're invited to spaces there are plenty of initiatives and mentorship this and a uh, new entrant that and marginalized group this and then you go and you you instantly know that it's not actually going to lead to anything it's a talk shop for people to sort of pat themselves on the back and say that they did it mm-hmm. this feels a little bit different this feels like people definitely want to 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 hear to listen, to. listen to enact something and it's an opportunity on the other side for people who I think are genuinely well-meaning but really don't have a clue where to start to have this conversation out in the open now and to not it's it's a little bit easier to approach somebody like myself and say would you mind having a conversation about this Uh, maybe than it was before because everybody's trying to have a conversation about it so it's an opportunity to say okay fine I, I don't particularly want to make this my professional concern really um but at the same time it's one it's work it's paying and it's an opportunity to make a contribution to a discourse that you know has been going on since long before i would say even the first time first time around
0: um it'll be interesting to see whether it um how it plays out in the culture and creative industry specifically because Mm. you know there is there is a chronic diversity problem which which is why you're being pulled in as a consultant mm-hmm. and expert as much as you are but a lot of the things I've heard of people are saying well actually the way things are going to be in the culture and creative industry it's going to be even harder mm-hmm. I mean, even harder for um, poor people, women ethnic minorities you name it to get a foot in the door because it's going to be, People that are going to gravitate back towards the safe, towards the people that they already know. You mentioned that yourself earlier. You know, people will want to work with their familiar little networks. They won't want to risk bringing somebody else in they don't know who doesn't who's not one of us. I think it might be really hard um, for for the you know for the this generation. You know, people who are in their early twenties now, trying to launch in a, into a creative career. Uh, uh, you know, unless they, unless they've got. Unless they've got some private income almost, you know?
1: Mm. I mean, yeah, I think that's always been the case. And, you know, funnily enough, just before lockdown, I'd gone to a meeting with a top black executive at a TV production company and had a very honest conversation with her and and had left that conversation thinking, yeah, I'm not going to keep pursuing television. Um, mm. Because there was somebody who was vastly more experienced than than I was, been hugely successful at you know, two of the major channels mm. and, um, you know, had had a period of 18 months where she'd had no work and, and no inquiries about work. Mm. You know, the reality is that people are more comfortable looking around the office and seeing people that look like them, mm. Um, mm. that have the same social and cultural references. So it's always a bit amusing to me when I ask somebody who works in TV, you know, what they studied and everybody that I know who's a new entrant has done film or documentary or something. And it's, you know, and and the, the other people who are quite, quite successful in TV generally have studied, you know, history or fine arts or PPE at Oxford. And, yeah, yeah. and when you ask them how they got their first job, oh, my dad knew this guy who, yeah, you know, yeah. let me come. And it's that kind of thing. And that that hasn't really changed, to yeah. be honest. And there are plenty of mentorship schemes. People get on them. Um, but they're not meant to actually lead to permanent employment. So I know people who I know somebody right now who's you know what is she probably almost 60 years old. she's in her 50s um, and is a very talented writer has had uh, films produced and is on a is on a scheme uh, a, a very good but an 18 month scheme writing on a soap. Mm. as a new entrant to the industry. Mm. And this is somebody with probably more experience than any of the people sitting around the table, but she's got to keep kind of applying for these things and hoping that they lead to something um, more permanent. These schemes are, are sort of, they stand alone. They're sort of off to the side. They're not integrated into, you know, the aim of them is not to bring people into the industry in any permanent way. The aim is to say, we trained X number of BAME people. Um, they're they're not making space in the industry uh, for people who don't have those connections
0: yeah it's really hard isn't it i mean it, i mean as you say those the schemes like bursaries and mentorship schemes all the rest of them just they just cherry pick an individual for a short time but the actual stru- all the structure around it remains exactly the same mm. and the worry is that that, uh, that the it's partly going to be economics as well there are just going to be fewer jobs mm. fewer opportunities fewer fewer con- less content being made mm-hmm. um for people to graduate into and and you know develop and build a career within um i was interested when i saw that you were doing things with ar and vr you know whether they these sort of emerge you know whether you almost have to bypass the old world of mm. the bbc and in order to find other channels or are those other channels equally blocked
1: those other channels are are far whiter.
0: <laughs> really, okay. absolutely.
1: Um, you know, VR, VR, and AR are incredibly expensive to make, mm-hmm. and then they don't have the distribution model quite yet. Unless you're making a game, you know. I purposely chose one of the cheaper, lower end headsets, which meant that, um, you know, I I did that because I wanted a headset that a lab, a library could buy um, or a community center and share the work with people who have no experience of VR. But in the world of VR, choosing that particular headset meant that I was constrained by the techniques that I could use and how flashy the graphics could be. And so it isn't necessarily seen as a project that um, has enough merit on the kind of creative side or the technical side. A lot of what happens in AR and VR is driven by innovation in the hardware and software, you know, it's it's a world where you get a lot of um, you get a lot of projects that are about marginalized people, but are not being made by marginalized people. Mm. So, because they're documentaries, and this is, I mean, this is common across film as well. You have you have these kind of interesting stories about triumphing against you know all the odds, or about um, terrible injustices, and their stories from marginalized people from the global south. Um, but the people who have the resources to make those stories are not from there. So I don't think that those worlds uh, provide a, a, a kind of end run around a broadcast entity, for example. Sure.
0: I suppose you sort of look around and think, well, where is, the, where is the kind of DIY, lo-fi, punk aesthetic? Just, mm. you know, get the work out there. Where, where is it happening? Because even things like streaming... Mm. live streams you know unless you've got a really good gear which is really expensive and who can afford it mm. then you're not really going to progress very far there either and so even something that should be you you do something lo-fi to make it more accessible but then people turn around and say well yeah but the quality isn't quite as good as the, the you know if you'd done this with a with an oculus rift it would have been way cooler and you could have done mm. this and this um so technology is not really the savior here it seems
1: it's just interesting to me that the ways in which people make money online don't really have a lot to do with um, the kind of creative output that we thought was going to take off online. You know, I, I made a short film in 2013 and then made it freely available online six months later. And that film shows somewhere around the world, like every month or something. Um, and sometimes I get paid for it and sometimes I don't. But if you're actually trying to make a living off of that model, it's incredibly difficult because you really have got to have a following. And it used to be that if you got 15,000 views on something, you'd be like, oh my God, this is amazing. But 15,000 mm. views is nothing now Sure. when somebody can film themselves unboxing a vacuum cleaner and get 4 million views. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's kind of, it's kind of yeah. dumbed down all content <laughs> so yeah. that it's, it's impossible really with everything that's out there, with all the noise for somebody who's doing something interesting and creative to really rise above all the noise and make themselves heard.
0: Oh, damn, this is, this is turning into a bit of a gloom fest, isn't it? I really <laughs> no, where's the, where's the glimmers of hope, Lisa? This is what we want.
1: I mean, I think, I think the glimmers of hope are, you know, they're in the model of, of, for example, what I did with my film. I think, you know, I decided a long time ago that it wasn't necessary for me to have a mass audience as long as I had an audience. Um, And so that film has done so many things on its own. Like it's got, I mean, somebody subtitled it in Mandarin for me because it's playing in China three years in a row at this university festival. You kind of have to decide that, yes, I'm sure lots of people would prefer it if they were, you know, on these major platforms and universally known and lauded and awarded. But quite a few people are making a decent living and fulfilling their creative, uh, you know, aspirations by focusing on a, on a tiny niche. I was never that interested in um, the mass audience because, again, I'm coming from a small island. So 15,000 views on something on an island of 290,000 people would be phenomenal.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Um, and now, you know, my audience is a diaspora. It's a Caribbean diaspora wherever they are in the world. And so the internet is a perfect place for me to, to, to do things. But it
0: does depend on audiences, I suppose. In the You know, it does depend on, on audiences being similarly kind of adventurous and proactive. And maybe they will be. You know, maybe that's one of the things out of lockdown. Um, you know, the social media orientation. You know, Black Lives Matter being an interesting, in a way, an interesting example of that because it's... Mm. If we're talking about audiences, it's found an audience Mm. that it didn't find before Mm. because of the moment we're in. So maybe, maybe other uh, you know there are there is people are people are listening and watching in different ways. Maybe
1: I hope so. I mean, I think even for myself, you know, when I go on Netflix, I do try to see what else is there. I think one of the things that's been great about Netflix is because they're now really branching out. Um, the countries that they take productions from, I can see things that I would not normally have seen. Mm. Uh, It's not US-centric or UK-centric. The other day I watched sort of Zimbabwe's first um, feature film to to land on Netflix, and the thing was made for $8,000. And I looked at that, and I could really relate to that because that's exactly how I made the first feature film that I made um, for round about the same amount of money. Um, And I could watch it and, and, and from a production management perspective, I could be thinking about, you know, I was dissecting all the ways in which they'd save money. (laughs) You know, if you're here in the UK, I think you, you, you do, you do have a bit of a tunnel vision about what your opportunities are and where the markets are and where the audiences are. I think if you come from somewhere else that doesn't have a built-in industry of its own, a domestic industry, you do think more um, broadly about where mm. audiences might be for your content. And I think mm. that that might have to start to happen now where people say, but actually my film did really well in Nigeria. Like why isn't that just as impressive as if my film did really well in the UK? Even within um, some of the Facebook book groups that I'm in, like um, Black Girls Doc Mafia or or, you know, Women in Documentary or Colors in XR. This is an opportunity as well. People are reaching out to each other and going, okay, you know, what, What skills do you have? Maybe we can collaborate on something. But I think freelancers have always been really agile. And we've just got to figure out where everything is going to land in a couple of months. Is coronavirus here with us, you know, till the end of 2020? Or are we going to be looking at this for another year, another year and a half? What does that mean, you know, for us as creative people?
0: That was Lisa Harewood talking to me on Wednesday, the 22nd of July. The creative industries rely on freelance workers like Lisa. Many of the risks, especially the risky business of cultural production, have been outsourced to self-employed individuals. Now, as the Covid crisis continues, these uncertainties have left them and us exposed. If we can't find a way of supporting and protecting vulnerable parts of our creative economy, the whole edifice will start to crumble. But freelancers are resourceful and resilient, and there are some glimmers of hope. Audiences are starting to look past their Netflix recommendations to seek out other types of content. The inequalities and biases in our creative industries are being called out, and the demand for real structural change, not just individual support, is growing. Lisa's perspective, working across different sectors and time zones, opens up alternatives, seeking out a niche audience and collaborating with others who share her values. Values like independence, social justice, social change. It's not going to be easy, especially for young people starting out as venues close and budgets shrink. But we all of us have a choice, producers and consumers. Do we want to be a cog in a big machine or do we want to connect with other voices and other stories? I'd like to thank Lisa for her time. Thanks to Mike Riczynski for tweaking the sound quality. Thanks to Rob Bilton again for the music. And thank you for listening. I'm Chris Bilton at University of Warwick, and we will meet again.